Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Let's pray before we get started. Lord, thank you for your constant provision, for going before us and providing even when it doesn't look like there's a way. Lord, and thank you for this free country that we have. Bless what you have to say today. In your name we pray, amen. So this church is quirky, Church 214. If you haven't noticed, we don't have a pastoral staff, a paid one anyway. We take breaks called SELAs to allow our volunteers to rest. We actually have a break next week. And we also have a tendency to not talk about money. So if you've spent any time in a church, in a ministry, or any not-for-profit, really, you'll know that that's pretty unusual, not talking about money. How do you operate if you don't talk about money and pass the offering plate? What I don't want you to take from that, though, is that we're afraid of the topic, because we're not. It actually started as something of an ultimatum and became kind of a spiritual experiment. You see, back when this team was formed, Blake and I actually agreed to join the team on two conditions. One was that we didn't talk about money from the pulpit. (laughs) True story. And the second was that I didn't have to preach. Yep. So as we stand here five years later, this church has established a culture of tithing that is nothing short of miraculous, in my opinion. The percentage of people that give is well over 80%, 80%, 80%, 80, 8-0. Most churches experience around 15%. That means that we're about five times the average. That is a miracle any way you look at it. How is it possible? My theory is that it really actually had nothing to do with the original ultimatum to not talk about money, but rather the allowance it has given us to talk about the heart. So quite simply, and you'll hear me say this a few times, it has nothing to do with the money. But if you ever have wondered about God having a sense of humor, and we all wonder that from time to time, you can just think about me up here blabbering on five years later about money. (laughs) I want to be clear up front, though, that we're not talking about tithing. No condemnation for who am I to condemn. But tithing is something that every one of us should be doing as naturally as breathing. For God commanded us to bring our first fruits as a baseline meaning that it's something that needs to be rhythmic in our lives, just like breathing. If anyone needs any guidance on tithing, please feel free to come talk to me anytime. It will be in total confidence and without judgment. Only the Lord knows how many things in my life do not meet the standard. So do not be afraid to reach out. What we want to focus on today is how God views sacrificial giving and what it says about our heart condition. Giving in this sense is not just about finances, but also about your time emotional support, and service to people, like what Phil and Isaac and the team is doing up here. This is such an important concept because it shapes so much of our perspective of God. It affects everything we know about God. But again, I should be clear that this has nothing to do about money. The church has gone to great lengths to debate this topic, and like most things, the debate is not worth the breath that we expend upon it. Let me prove this by framing how Jesus thinks about money. Matthew 17, 24 to 27. 
When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Peter, in his infinite wisdom, said, yes. I still don't know what he meant. <clears throat> so when he came into the house, still confused, I'm sure it was Peter, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Verse 27, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So I love everything about how Jesus posits this to Peter. The backstory here is incredible, so you should read it for context. There are many things to learn from it. But let's just focus on the last verse, verse 27. We can draw some remarkable lessons from just a few sentences. First, and I love this one personally, Jesus took the mother of all shortcuts. You see, he pulled the coin directly from the fish's mouth. So I'm just like picturing this little guy swimming around, poor thing. <laughs> Finally finds some money. He's got the shekel in his mouth. And he's just getting ready to show it to his friends, Nemo and Bruce, Flipper. Anybody else? Right about then, Peter's hairy paws grab him out of the water, swipe his prize, chuck him back in, hopefully. Stealing his prize. It's hardly fair. But think about that for a moment. Jesus could have said to Peter, go and take your boat, get your guys, cast your nets, drag them to the market, sell them, come back stinky and sweaty in a month, and pay my tax for me with your profits. That's not what he did. He went directly to the solution and provided immediately. This is proof that God does not need your money or your striving. He needs your obedience. Second, Jesus tailored his lesson and solution to Peter specifically. It required having Peter having enough faith to obey, but it also exhibited God's power and authority directly to Peter. You see, Peter had probably caught hundreds of thousands of fish in his life, but I guarantee you he had never caught one with a shekel in its mouth. I mean, I don't think Kip has probably ever killed a poor little Bambi with a shekel in its mouth, just guessing. But Peter, of all people, knew just how preposterous this idea was. This shows us that Jesus did not need the money to pay the tax. He needed to ask for Peter's obedience and to further remind him where all provision comes from, all. Third, if you go back to the beginning of the passage, it clearly states that they asked about the teacher's and not Peter's. So as an aside, I find it funny that even in those days, they had to go ask Peter rather than having the courage to go directly to the source and ask. But some things don't evolve. <laughs> what this says to me, though, is that the tax collectors of the city, they already knew or expected that Peter would pay his tax. In other words, Jesus did not need to provide for Peter in this instance, but he did it anyway. Jesus asked Peter to obey and in turn provided a shekel, which is equal to four drachma, in the most personal and poignant way possible to cover the tax for them both. Peter did not necessarily need 
Jesus' money to pay the tax, but his obedience paid it anyway. I would call that the definition of abundance. So there's been a lot of drama in the church debating God's exact role in blessing our lives, but let this story be a reminder of his provision upon obedience, even when unasked. I think this story also beautifully illustrates that Jesus did not view money how we do. He simply knew his heavenly father would provide. You can sense his calm as he suggests taking the coin out of the mouth of a fish. And I also don't think the comparative imagery of a coin sliding filthily out of a stinky, slimy fish should be lost on us either when we think about how Jesus actually views money. So it's clear that God's ways and desires are not our ways when it comes to money. So why does it come up so much in the Bible? It's simply because he wants our heart. And he understands that money and possessions are what holds the heart captive for so many of us. He recognizes that if obedience in this area of our lives flows freely and without question, he can work through our lives in so many avenues that were previously inaccessible to him. God does not care about our money. He doesn't have a need to. But there's nothing he cares about more than our heart and the things that possess it. So how do we shift from living with our human perspective of finance to God's surgical recognition of it merely being a tool for his glory? What is it in us that needs to change for this to become a reality? It is in my own shortcomings and deep longing for financial security that I've had to search for these answers because deeply ingrained in my soul is a foreboding fear of not being able to provide for my family. It is a mentality that is so rooted in poverty that the very idea of asking for God's blessing in my life still feels like sin to this day, despite numerous biblical examples to the exact contrary. So what I found is that someone must live in one of two worlds, a fixed world or a world of growth. A fixed world is one of constant fear, I'm speaking from experience. It believes that money is the beginning and the end. It believes that a dollar in your pocket cannot also be in mine. And it believes that a dollar given is gone forever. It leaves us a slave to striving for the next job, the next goal, the next toy, the next car, the next house, whatever it may be. It establishes a stake in this earth and all the entrapments that it offers. What I've also found in searching my heart is that while the traits of discipline and diligence are wonderful, the very promise, the very premise of financial security is a lie. It binds us to a fixed mindset that believes we need this world's seductive promise of security. It plants seeds of scarcity, of poverty. And I've spent decades personally being guilty of this mindset. Did you know that during this COVID crisis, the United States alone has created between four and six, tri I don't know how they don't know, but they've created between four and six trillion new currency units that did not exist before. Some estimates have this total ballooning to 20 trillion before all is said and done. So does it make any sense to anchor ourselves to something that humans can infinitely create out of thin air amidst the excuse of manufactured chaos? Let's take this one step further. The best financial minds recognize gold 
as the ultimate store of wealth. They use it to measure the value of all things over time because it does have a fixed value. It is known as the honest zero, meaning it doesn't lie to you like money does, fiat money. It's the money of kings. It's bound by nothing but what someone is willing to pay for it in their native currency. What does the king of kings think of gold? This is one of my favorite facts. He uses it as his base aggregate for his heavenly roads. It's throwaway rock. I myself have bound my earthly security to pretty little rocks with Caesar's face on them at times. It's smart. Thankfully, there is another way to live. It's a life that establishes growth as its guiding principle. And we should go to the Word to find some examples of that. We will start with Solomon. He knew a thing or two about money. Proverbs 18.16. A gift opens the way and ushers the giver into the presence of the great. Think about that for a second. Who's the greatest of the great? It's the Lord. Solomon says, a gift ushers the way into the presence of the Lord. God does not take this lightly. Proverbs 11.24. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. Next verse. A generous person will prosper, and whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Paul had a few nice things to say as well, so I will go easy on him for just today. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. As I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows abundantly will also reap abundantly. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly, or under compulsion, so none of this can qualify as compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Remember that bolded portion for later, because we'll come back to it. More from Paul E.D. 2 Corinthians 8.12, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. That shows you that this doesn't have anything to do with money or quantity. It has to do with sacrificial giving and generosity. 2 Corinthians 9.8, And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. That particular verse leaves quite a lot unsaid, so we'll have to think about it. How about Mark? He was good. Mark 12, 44. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she owned, all that she had to live on. This certainly isn't about gender. So it's not really my intention to weigh in on the feudal and humanistic debate that always rages from these verses. But mustn't we be asking ourselves which theology more wholly relies on God's sovereignty? That's usually a hint of which direction you're supposed to go. Should not we be aligning ourselves and our disciplines with the giver of all gifts? This isn't what we think it is. The very notion that sacrificially giving of our earthly belongings and talents and time does not bring one closer to the myriad gifts of the Father is directly contradictory to the word. We must learn to recognize that separating ourselves from earthly treasures loosens our dependency of this earth. It begins to soften the strings that bind our hearts so tightly. 
one tiny sacrifice at a time slowly draws us closer to that pearl of great price that my brother Isaac talked about a few weeks ago. Eventually, we find ourselves desiring nothing else. What we then possess is no longer ours to possess nor possesses us, but rather a cachet to be utilized by the Lord for his works. Do we feel as if this is where our hearts are currently situated? Let's go back to the word to test what the Spirit is saying. 2 Corinthians 9.10 Now he, God, who supplies seed to the sower, you and me, and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. So this is an incredibly powerful statement. Paul is saying that the great giver will not just grant you a harvest, but he will increase your store of seed. This tells us specifically that sowing with God increases our ability to sow again in the future. Just in case this is not clear, Paul doubles down in the next verse. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So it seems as if Paul knew this would be a difficult concept to truly embrace, and it has proven to be difficult to embrace. So he made certain to say every twice. I think we also tend to trivialize Thanksgiving as uh, football or noodles or, um, at the very best, (laughs) spoken gratitude. And it is a wonderful thing to be grateful to God. But did you know that in Leviticus, the Hebrew translation for Thanksgiving is toda, which quite literally meant an optional sacrifice to God. So toda is Thanksgiving, is an optional sacrifice to God. So reread that passage again. And through us, your generosity will result in sacrificial giving to God. Paul is literally telling us, that this discipline spreads God's seeds of sacrificial living, not just in yourself, but in those affected by your gift as well. It's as if by unbinding your heart, you can reach out and help someone release the chains on theirs as well. So God's desire is that we move from a place of fear and scarcity to one of faith and abundance. He's asking us to release our death grip on our earthly tethers and live as he so gently commands. the daily desire of my heart is to live as the widow, willing to give the last of everything she had to God's prophet so he could live one more day to spread God's message. But in all honesty, I can tell you that this practice is only in its nascency in my life. The instinct to hoard and consume, conserve the things of this earth are so deeply ingrained in me it can consume my thoughts. It is poisonous to its core. Its root is fear and its end is selfishness. It's the single thing that anchors me to this earth the most. Flipping that switch from scarcity to abundance is so inextricably intertwined to living in my flesh versus living in the spirit that I cannot escape it. God wants my heart and he knows where to find it. So where's your heart in this? Do you find yourself in constant fear and anxiety? Gripped by the laws of scarcity? Is God using you as a river 
Or are you simply furiously digging your hole deeper as the water seems to constantly dry up? If an honest reflection of yourself reveals that you trend more towards the latter, commit to praying for a spirit of abundance rather than scarcity. Meditate on this word directly from Jesus in Luke. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Many of you know, and some of you may not know, that this church recently bought a building in downtown Peoria. It's a move that is taking us from the protective cocoon of the outskirts of this city into the exposure of bright lights and heavy traffic. It is quite literally God moving us into the center to change hearts and lives. But this has not been an easy process. From the beginning, the enemy has tried to stop it at every turn. We've wanted to quit. I've wanted to quit. Maybe not everyone has. We've been told we weren't ready by people who didn't have the authority in our lives to tell us that. We've faced injuries in the demolition process. We've seen incomes slashed and businesses struggle. And none of it is a coincidence. The enemy does not want to see us take root in the center of the city. He does not want people's hearts to be softened to God's perspective. Through all of this, though, the voice of the Lord keeps resonating through this passage. And I'm going to prepare you in advance. This is extremely convicting. At least it was to me. Haggai 1, 2 through 6. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. The people are saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord, which is an excuse, by the way. Then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins, Solomon's temple. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Look at what's happening to you. You have planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes, which I can relate with. The next chapter and a half go into great detail as to why the Israelites were reaping diminished returns from their efforts, even in their rebuild of the temple, which lacked in its former glory of Solomon's days. They feared that God would not keep his promise because of their insufficiency in restoring the temple. But the restorer of all things finishes the passage with this simple proclamation. From this day onward, I will bless you. From this day onward, I will bless you. So about three years ago, I was setting up the kids' area of this building when the Lord spoke to me and said, I've blessed this church with this place, but it is not my home, and it's time to lead this family to my home. So my deep-seated feelings of inadequacy led me to praying for help, which is what I normally do in these times. For those whose gifts and talents could come alongside and propel us towards what God is asking of us. It was very shortly after this that God brought several families into this church to help jumpstart that process, just as I had somewhat selfishly prayed. Fast forward, though, a couple of years to February of 2019. As we stood in the sweltering sun of Haiti, sowing with our hands as God commands, he compelled me to ask two very special members of this church to financially back moving into a permanent home. 
We didn't even have a building picked out. But these two gentlemen readily agreed without hesitation anyway. You see, they were living out Paul's message in 2 Corinthians. It was just four months later that we were closing on the building on Oak Street. So for a little church of 120 people at the time, it could have only been faith that put us in a big warehouse building in downtown Peoria. It was and still as if the great cynicism that this city is currently known for could do nothing but shrivel and kneel in the sweeping presence of the abundant Almighty. This church is comfortable operating in the unconventional. It's in our DNA. It's in my DNA. Those closest to me will tell you that contrarianism is the only axiom I've ever embraced. (laughs) The subsequent months since closing on this building have been an encapsulation of that. Nothing in the conventional has worked. Every effort towards building God's house the world's way has been met with dead ends. And yet through every step, God has continued to build his momentum. My sister, Holly, the one to whom I must always listen, (laughs) has said from the beginning that she believed God has other plans, believing he wanted to act in a powerful and all-encompassing way that would permanently change the perspective of everyone involved. Just this past month, as Holly and I were preparing our presentation to present to a local bank board for approval of funding, COVID-19 swept through and paused our progress, yet the latest roadblock in our human efforts to build God's house. You see, this pandemic has its roots in fear. We've watched the world grind to a halt, bowing towards an unseen enemy of which the world has told us we have no weapons to fight. That is always a lie. The weapons are always the same, and they always persevere in the end. Blake and I were recently confronted with this very paradox. In late February, we had committed to make a contribution to the rebuilt fund in an effort to get us over the hump to secure financing once and for all. The very week we were to begin giving, the hysteria surrounding the virus struck the economy. Our investment account was cut by three times the amount God had told us to give. The money we were going to give was gone. And then some, and then some. Maybe we should have said to give more. It just struck me that that might have been the problem. So here we were. We were in the midst of spearheading the rebuilding of God's temple, faced with the decision to either go back on our promise to God or put the sacrificial gift on credit cards follow through on our commitment. It was in this time of uncertainty and doubt that God revealed this passage to us, which became something that we meditated on daily in that time. Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. That really speaks to Blake. (laughs) Test me in this says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. So when God lays something this direct and poignant in front of you, it becomes impossible to refute. It was the fear of the Lord that compelled us to act and the promise of God that gave us the confidence to follow through. 
God wants this from us so badly that he asks us to test him in this. God does not do that often. He's begging us to believe him in this. He wants to occupy our hearts, and he knows where they reside. Test him in this. So we gave the gift over five days, starting on March 9th, amid unprecedented panic in the United States. You see, this is a muscle we'd been exercising for some time, trying, at least, to view giving in God's context and not man's. I can't think of any financial advisors that would tell you to put a gift on a credit card. I wouldn't tell you that. This was different, though. This was terrifying. In a world, even a Christ-centered world, obsessed with financial security, this defied discipline and logic, two character traits that I profess to hold so dear. It was in these moments of fear that the Holy Spirit so sweetly whispered to me, there is no such thing as financial security. You are binding your strength to an earthly concept that does not square with God's kingdom. Security can only be found through Jesus. Every other promise of security is a lie. We gave the final portion of that gift on March 18th, which uh, those of you that are given to math in the room can, can understand that 9 to 18 is not exactly 5. I think that speaks to the fear that was in my heart. I'll speak for myself. March 18th was two trading days before markets bottomed in an all-out, unprecedented panic. I would like to stand here and tell you that joy was exploding out of the ventricles of my heart. <laughs> but that would be a lie. I was a broken man, laying bare decades of scarcity and fear on an altar of desperation. There have been many profound interjections of the Holy Spirit in my life, but what happened next stands above the rest. It's the reason I'm telling you this story. As I clicked give now with the final portion on that fifth day, I looked up at Blake across our desks and I said, there's the last bit. I guess we see what happens now. <laughs> Radical faith, I tell you. Radical. <laughs> you can feel the resignation in my voice even now. It was just a few minutes later, and I'm talking 10 minutes later, that Blake asked me if I'd be bothered if she turned a podcast on. I lied, said yeah, said no, it wouldn't bother me. <laughs> so as I sat there working and paying little attention to the podcast, I suddenly leapt up when I heard Lisa Bevere say my name. And Isaac, he sowed into famine, and the Lord blessed him. So I regularly ask the Lord for confirmations in the natural of the things that he's doing in the eternal. And he knows this. Less than 15 minutes after following through in final obedience of the commitment we'd made, a podcast I wasn't even listening to burst into my office and reassured me of the provision of the Lord. Blake and I looked at each other in stunned silence. I finally asked her to rewind it to make sure I'd actually heard it correctly. 
Sure enough. We then quickly looked up the reference because I could never recall having even read this passage before. I had no idea what she was talking about. There it was, plain as day. Genesis 26, 12. And Isaac sowed in that land, the land of famine, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. So you may be here today or listening via the live stream or maybe later via the podcast. And you're going to be tempted to take my experience and discount it as a coincidence. I understand. Doubt is by far the easier posture to uphold than belief. There's nothing more potent to overcome this posture of doubt, though, than to experience it for yourself. Ask God to invade your life with signs and reassurance of his goodness. He's done it so many times in my life, but let me tell you, it doesn't get any less earth-shattering. In fact, it seems to build upon itself. In this particular instance, the fear did not subside immediately. On multiple occasions over the next two days, I asked God to reaffirm what he'd told us. Two more times, this exact scenario unfolded. This same story repeated from different speakers on various podcasts that I was not listening to. (laughs) Isaac sowed into famine, and the Lord blessed him. Three times in 48 hours, the Holy Spirit broke in and sealed his promise in our hearts. Once is a special coincidence. Twice, it's convincing. Three times is sobering. I would rather not see the other side of the Lord after he speaks a third time if you refute it. I tell you the story with some trepidation, to be honest. Trepidation of needing to conceal that which we give. The human fear that perhaps God, what he said, will not bear fruit and it will make his promise return void. The fear and false humility of not wanting to appear proud. But at the end of the day, the Lord has continually whispered, test me in this, test me in this, test me in this. Challenge those around you with this test. Deuteronomy 15.10 says, You shall give generously to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. Adopting a lifestyle of complete resilience, reliance on God's provision, is not going to come naturally or easily at first. You certainly cannot trick God with your heart posture. Again, speaking from experience. What you can do is exercise the discipline of living in the Spirit, and God's promised blessing pouring over your life makes that exercise more wonderful with every gift. Trust me when I tell you that this virtuous cycle will make you the cheerful giver that Paul talked about. I close with this. God is not looking for us to conserve the things of this earth. God is looking for us to be fruitful and multiply. Consider the parable of the talents. We know this story well. But think about it from the perspective of the master. And Jesus was placing himself in the master's position as God. This was not 
It was never a parable about money. This was a parable about doing the master's will. The master's will was to invest in his kingdom, to multiply. Two of his servants chose to believe and obey their master, and he rewarded them in kind. The third chose to play it safe and scarce, ensuring he had something to give back to the master when he returned. The master does not want only the gifts he's given you today. He wants everything you can give. He wants to use you to multiply. He wants your whole heart, not just the small piece we're giving him today. But I think it's important to recognize that this parable had three servants and not just two. Have you ever considered why that is? Couldn't it have been illustrated just as completely with two servants, an abundantly-minded one, and a scarcely-minded one? This is my own thought, but I believe it was to illustrate that this was not about individual talent. It was not about skill, but rather the action that God, the action that was taken to invest in God's kingdom. Jesus used a plural example rather than a singular one to make it clear that all who invest into his kingdom will be set over much. If that isn't enough, he also invites both servants to enter into his joy. I think in another five years, I'll come back and preach a message just about that last sentence. I would be remiss, though, if I did not include his message to the fearful servant. Verse 26 finishes with this. You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Again, he's telling him, I don't need your money, I need your obedience. But Jesus is telling us that an attitude of fear and scarcity is equal to wickedness. He's reminding us that he will reap and gather. It's merely a question of whether we will join him. So this message is not just for some, but for all. The Lord wants your heart, and he knows where to find it. The Lord wants your faith and action, not your fear. We've never launched a formal campaign for the purchase or renovation of the Oak Street building. We're quirky. But there's a strong sense in this team that the Lord wants to make his name famous through the miraculous provision of funds for Oak Street's rebuilding. That someone or someone's listening to this would feel led to give out of his or her abundance to build God's kingdom. That this little church was supposed to experience a seminal moment of living in God's economy and provision. A clear line of demarcation between scarcity and abundance in the hearts and minds of this city. As you go into the days and weeks ahead and consider sacrificially giving to the Rebuilt Fund as well, let this promise of abundance take root in your heart one more time. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it.